Welcome to the Femme Fatale podcast, where we interview some of the coolest female-identifying folks in film. This episode, we invite in another guest from right at home in Toronto, Erin T. Erin T is a producer slash project manager at Endless Films, a production company that she started with her now husband and their friend fresh out of film school. On IMDb, Erin is best known for producing the documentary Dark Side of the Chew, discussing the health, environmental, and economic impacts of chewing gum. But today, we have the chance to sit down with Erin to talk about much, much more, like how to start your own film production company, what the benefits are of hiring friends, and of course, what it's like to be a woman in the industry. Um, something that I am forgetting in most of my podcast interviews is just to introduce the guest at the beginning. <laughs> uh, I never, I, get it. I, I do like my own intros like separately and record them at yeah. a different time. So I always forget to just be like, Hey, Aaron, welcome to the podcast. And then, you know, have that little snippet and like, have you say, hi, this is who I am. <laughs> hi. Um, so I figured we'd start with that. My, my normal intro question to get people a bit familiar with like who you are is to describe yourself in three words, which is definitely a little bit of a challenge for some people. So um, if you yes, could introduce I, yourself yeah. with your name and describe yourself in three words, that would be okay. awesome. And also welcome hello. to the podcast. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, hello, my name is Erin T. That's T-E-E. It's not short for anything, as many people ask me when I was younger. It's not a stage name, as people ask me when I was an actor. Um, and three words. Hmm. All right. Uh, social, I think. I'm a fairly social person. Um, creative, most of the time. And um, I like to think honest. <laughs> That's a good three. That's those are hard to think about, but yeah. But I like those. Social, creative, and honest. That was what you And did. interestingly, creative for me is like not creative in the way that I think a lot of people think about it. Like I think I approach life creatively, but I'm not as creative as some people out there, which is, anyway, just as, an, as a side note. Like in terms of like you approach life with a creative... <laughs> yeah, well, like I don't... Yeah, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I think of some people who are filmmakers and video, like video makers and stuff who are super creative, like they're artistic. I guess that's mm-hmm. more, I'm more thinking creative as opposed to artistic, like creative problem solving or like as an example, like that I look at things and try and find that way in or around or take an idea that might be kind of boring and try and approach it creatively. I think right. that's the way I mean by creative as opposed to like I have some friends who are so super super like they like they're like the true definition of an artist like anything she does is artistic and I'm like you take the most banal thing and like she just has to make art like out of anything you know right what I mean? it's, right it's really interesting to, to to see the stuff she comes up with anyway that's yeah. a total segue side note there <laughs> no but I like it and I think that is an interesting well I mean when we first talked about the kind of work you do I feel like you brought up that distinction then too of like what you're and maybe this is actually kind of a useful segue into the next question um to like talk about your work like when you're working as a producer or as a project manager like what that looks like um compared to being like the director or the like script writer or um more like both of those I or all of those roles I would see as being creative roles where you have to you know have a certain amount of like problem solving skills that are not going to be within the box because you know you can't you can't answer a lot of those questions when you're not thinking in a way that's different from other people. Um, but 
but I'm losing myself here. But um, <laughs> um, yeah, I'd just be interested to hear of like, like how you sort of like what part of your creativity and like how your creativity leads into your work or how you see yourself as like a creative when you're working. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I get that question. Actually, it's, it's, and I think this is why I answer creative now as I'm thinking about it more. So now I get my thoughts together. Um, <laughs> so I work for myself with two other business partners. We've worked together for, um, well, in theory, 20 years because we started while we were still in school. So, I mean, officially 19 years, I guess, because that's when we graduated. Um, but we are three people. We've always been three people. We've never grown larger than three people out of somewhat out of choice. We've always contracted out if we really need extra help, but we do a lot of our work in house. And because of that, we get the opportunity to fill multiple roles. So I don't really do videography much, but I have like last year, I went on a documentary shoot with my um, business partner, Ian, who's a fantastic cinematographer. Um, And I went as the PA, not the PA, but the project manager, uh, production manager, I guess, because it's documentary, but because he needed a second camera and they didn't really have anybody else to go, I did the second camera and it was a great experience for me to actually put my hands back on a camera and shoot, because I did shoot in film school and it's not that I don't have the content, like the, the knowledge and the ability to set up frames and to appreciate a good shot. But it's just like that familiarity with the technology that was kind of scary, but it was really, really neat. So I think being in a small company like that, we get the opportunity to fill multiple roles. And I usually fill the role of producer, pro- project manager, because we use the term project manager because we do a lot of work with clients. And with clients, they like that term because, you know, it means you're in charge of the whole project. And you're making sure that you're interacting with the client and you're following schedules, you're making budgets. But that's what producers do. But I'm also an editor. Like I, I, I studied editing as well, and um, I'm quite good editor. And I've mm-hmm. done all of our because we're I'm fluently bilingual. So in our company, I do all of the French language editing. Um, but all that to say, I think that the creativity aspect of it is what I do is I don't have to do the same thing day in and day out. Right. So I've gone into offices and worked as an editor for two weeks straight, or I've gone into other places and done one single role for a prolonged period of time and for prolonged for me is like a month mm-hmm. <laughs> and I come away from it saying I'm very very glad that this is not the only role I always do even right. though I really enjoy that role like I love editing but sometimes when you're editing day in and day out and you don't have the opportunity to do other things creatively it can be tiring and the other thing to say is that as an editor for our company like Ian's the same way and even Alex who's more do more the writing and directing he also can do he does assemble edits when we're really busy Mm -hmm. um he doesn't have the technical as much as we do but he does have the visual sense which is massively important that's the thing that i sometimes find is lacking with editors it's like you'll see a piece and you're like oh it's because technically it's edited well but it doesn't have a good story flow because either the director hasn't given good good info or it's just that sometimes the editor is making um, creative choices that aren't working mm-hmm. so for us we get a lot of we have creative freedom like I don't Alex doesn't sit with me or with Ian and edit it's like we are the creative editors so whatever so that's why it's kind of this very fluid creative process for the three of us and because we've worked together for so long it's like you wouldn't know that the person who came up with the concept and then the person who shot it and then the person who edited it wasn't sort of all working from telling each other what they thought like I don't know how to explain it I guess it's just because we've worked together for so long so tell us a bit more about your company about starting a company out of film school um and yeah what you guys do exactly 
So um, Ian and Alex and I are make up Endless Films, which started in on paper in 2001, I guess. But we kind of we did our first job still in school in the summer, or the summer of third year into fourth year. So I used to work at the uh, film cage at Ryerson University, which is where you rent all the film equipment. So I was I worked over the summer, so I was able to actually rent out all the equipment for free. So we were able to do like this really kind of like we found a job on the film job board at school and we're like yeah let's try it and we went to the interview and we got the job and we shot it over the summer and like I don't know how much money we made but it was like split it and I think we said split it in three and then whatever right so Mm -hmm. um that was sort of our first foray into it and then when we were in fourth year um so we continued to work together I mean that's what happens in film school is like you get to know the people you can work with the people you can't work with or the people that have the same vision as you and the people who don't people have the same attitude towards filmmaking like you Mm -hmm. know we have a very not relaxed like we're very professional but we also enjoy ourselves and we try and find the fun in everything Mm -hmm. so that we enjoy the process I think it was Alex that said oh it would be nice like fun to kind of make a company like it's this weird thing where the three of us decided we were going to make this film company we didn't really know what we were going to do with it right point like we made one video for clients and then over the summer we actually got another job that was a fairly big job for us at the time it was with the council of ministers of education canada which um has funding from ministries across canada It's, it's like a body that sort of helps unify the education systems across uh canada because they're provincially and territorially implemented right so they need a sort of governing body or i'm not really sure how you call it but they have this program called now it's called the language assistance program they were trying to get kids to to sign up for it it's like you you if you're a french speaker you can go and teach help teach french and english english provinces and vice versa so we were hired to do this video over the summer and so that was a fairly big deal and you know we we actually was a job where we had put in a bid and beat out a bunch of other people so we were feeling pretty good and that happened over the summer and that was great and as after that happened in September sort of we were like okay are we gonna go look at do getting some work in um you know in the industry in the actual industry like go out and, mm-hmm. and become assistant directors or whatever you do I don't even know what you do anymore when you come out of film school and it was September 11th happened that in September so there was no work for, right you wanted to go into film sets there was no work like there was um the economy first of all wasn't very good and then the, uh secondly the all of the um Canadian productions that would have happened with American money were not coming in. Oh, wow. Because of, yeah, one, because of uh, September 11th, but also because the IPA agreement, which is the independent producers agreement that they make with ACTRA, Mm -hmm. was being renegotiated. And they were saying, once it's renegotiated, you will have to follow the new terms. So nobody wanted to start their production until that IPA, the new IPA came out. So that also delayed production in a different way. Right. So anyway, that all just was sort of like this perfect storm for us to say, well, we don't really have another option. Like I can't easily go out and be even a PA for somebody and make some money on like, so we just worked for ourselves. And because we had the job that we did over the summer was fairly lucrative for us because we didn't have a lot of expenses. I, again, I worked at the cage, so we got all of our film equipment for free. We filmed in Montreal and Ottawa and stuff, but like we stayed with my parents. We used to like, they were still living in Montreal. We drove to Ottawa for the day. We filmed with the people that were the actors in our films were friends of ours. So we were able to pay them, but we didn't have to pay them like exorbitant amounts of money. Like right. we had, yeah. we paid them a fair rate for their time. Um, and then we did all the work ourselves. Like we edited everything. So again, there was a lot of, of the budget was able to stay within um, for us to get 
paid, but also uh, within our company. So at the beginning, before we actually had salaries or any of that stuff, we just used to take whatever the budget that was left and split it for like four ways. Like we each got a third, uh, fourth, a quarter, and the company got a quarter. So that was how we sort of built up. That's how we bought our first computer that wasn't like garbage. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, yeah, so that's sort of how we got started. And then, like, I can't, like, I'm thinking back, and I'm like, I think it was at least another year or so before we got another job. But we had very few expenses, so we were okay. And people right. used to say, you're crazy, you're starting your own business. I'm like, I don't have anything to lose. Yeah. So we basically evolved, I guess, if you would say, that the way we approach filmmaking um, is, and it's, like I said, most of our stuff is client-based or client-driven, is... Um, telling people stories so whether right. or not that to understand how I don't know recently we went to a place where they um, it's called planet shrimp and they have shrimp like they like grow I don't know if you call it growing shrimp but they raise shrimp like in huge pools in like a warehouse a massive warehouse in Aylmer Ontario it's there's nowhere it's nowhere near the sea right and it's like all sustainably done and this is this this is what these people do and we went and we interviewed them for a client and told their story but it's like fascinating to me I'm like you're still they're still telling their story right like yeah frame our interviews and everything so that people can tell their own stories as opposed to us going in and having like we dropped the the omniscient narrator really early on before it was like it's kind of what you see all the time now so it feels like less relevant but we were doing that a long time ago. We had to, like, we had to put the had to let students say how they felt about things. Parents, teachers, mm-hmm. it was in their voice. It was so important that they were saying how they felt about things and what they thought of things, as opposed to us going in and doing the research and then telling the story for them right. with images and narration, which right. is very used to be very um, popular in um, client-based stuff because they like the control. But mm-hmm. we kind of implemented that really early on. One because it's like it. it removes a lot of work you yes you have to do the editing but you don't have to do I don't know like the voiceover work and right, hiring yeah, a narrator yeah, yeah. And, like, and also it's telling actually, a more interesting story yeah, like structuring narrative it, narration is not always easy either right mm-hmm. so, but that's sort of I guess like what our artist statement would be although I say that like kind of <laughs> you know like what our company like we do have passions and we do have things that we prefer and there's definitely jobs that we've done over the last I don't know, 15 years that have been like less interesting, but mm-hmm. we've never done anything. We've never worked on any projects that go against our core values mm-hmm. either. Like we've just said, like we used to joke, like we're never going to make videos that sell cigarettes to minors. Mm-hmm. Not that anybody ever asked us to do that, but <laughs> we luckily have fallen into, and maybe it's just choice of what we put our proposals in for and what we get selected for is we have started to and continue to create projects that have to do with things that we're interested and passionate about like equity and inclusion and, right you know bullying prevention and parent engagement and giving people like I said giving people a voice to, to tell their own stories so mm-hmm. yeah that's super important too that like I feel like the only way to do good work is to do work you're interested in <laughs> so it sort of makes sense as well that if you find those projects then it'll just be so much more engaging for your experience um as part of it too um, yeah for sure because I think you you give up early like fairly early on yeah weren't or you'd give up the the level of quality I think one thing that I'm proud of that the three of us have continued to be able to do even though we you know we've been in the industry a long time and I'm like it's easy to get tired and kind of complacent about things is we continue to approach our projects with an enthusiasm that was one of the reasons we got work when we were younger was right 
we had the enthusiasm and the drive, we didn't have the experience. Where all we have the experience and the enthusiasm and the drive. And I think one of the reasons we get rehired by the same clients who can rehire us because they need more video work is we also bring to like the experience of recording and videotaping, which is kind of silly to say, but <laughs> like it's it's not unpleasant for these people to do it. I didn't realize that some video companies are really difficult to work with. I just thought, right. it was like, well, this is the way everybody approaches it. Yeah. Right? Like you come in, you're being invited into somebody's business or home. Of course you don't put on uh, these crazy demands. I don't know. It was, it was recently when I worked with uh, another client who was in event planning and she's like, oh no, I've worked with videographers that are like, really think that they have the run of the place. And I'm like, really? Like, <laughs> why though? Yeah. Like, I, anyway, but that, I, that was surprising to me. And I personally have worked, the only people I've ever worked with that are within my creative field or whatever you want to call it Mm -hmm. have been similar like mindset so I guess maybe it's just who I surround like we surround ourselves with professionally I don't think it's a reflection of the industry in in general I just think there are some some groups out there that are like that and so because we're not like that people don't mind having us come back again because like oh yeah they were fun it's fine for them to come in and interview us Mm -hmm. the product we create is what the client wants but then on top of that having us come in is not this huge inconvenience mm-hmm. so it's not such a big deal for them anyway yeah and that's important too that they that there's a connection to like between you and also your client that's beyond just oh I'm providing you work um which sort yeah. of brings me to my next question of like what's your favorite project to work on so I'll answer that one first in the past because well and hopefully maybe it'll be ongoing we never know um so about 10 years ago, we started this project with um, COPA, which is a French francophone organization called Centre des Préventions des... Centre Ontarien des Préventions des Agressions. So basically, they work with... Um, they're all, all about stopping aggression. Mm-hmm. They focus on bullying prevention, um, safe schools. They do a lot of work in the, with the Ministry of Education, but through funding. So we actually worked with them on projects. So, um, But we developed with them after a couple of projects we worked with them that were documentary based on interviewing students about their life as newcomers and, and what it was like, you know, being in school, bullying prevention and stuff. But we, the project that came out of that was the Ministry of Education funded them to create a series of animations on started out parent engagement then it became bullying prevention and then it's morphed into like that was then translated into multiple languages that was then um uh modified into for indigenous families then it was modified for educators that work with indigenous families so this series that was originally 10 short animations they were um based on concepts like active listening and then we would create the 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 narrative like the characters, what they look like, everything. Obviously, this was all approved for by COPA. Mm-hmm. But we had to create these little characters that were gender neutral. Um, so they kind of looked like um, like a little bit like Barbara Bacaz meets like okay. something else. But, okay. <laughs> um, they kind of have like arms that come out and they do things and they can go back and they, they're very expressive in the way that like we had one situation where the character was really sad. So they deflated like a balloon and stuff Aww. like that. So I was, what I was going to say is what I, like the best or was the most proud of I think of that series is that because we were initially only did 10 and the focus was on parent engagement and it was the challenge of first of all you can't use language the mm. characters did not speak mm-hmm. we did have narration in the end we did have to go with some sort of narration to help explain because they were like these little jumping off ideas so they were like 30 seconds to 60 seconds and they were jumping off point to start the conversation right. on what what can you do as a parent uh, to do home 
home and school collaboration, for right. example. So that wasn't the whole answer wasn't in there. It was just showing you often in a somewhat comical way, um, in a very visual way, like what that might look like. Mm-hmm. So the home and school collaboration one was that the one of the characters was having a lot of trouble with math and the math was literally turned, the numbers turned into a dog and was chasing the kid and the kid was freaking out, right? And the parent was right. like, what do I do? What do I do? I'm, I'm not sure. And so the parent went and spoke to the teacher um, and the teacher and the parent worked together and they came up with some solutions that they could do at home and at school. And so then in the end, the, the child is able to, you know, tame the dog with a with a bone that looks like the number one so that the child has solved the equation like it's a very simplified way of showing that but it it was very effective and there was no use of language except in the narration to talk about what that looks like so that was easily translatable though so we originally produced those in english and french because um copa is a francophone organization but also we're in Ontario and we're we should in in canada so we should still produce things in english (laughs) and french if we can um, but then those were then those were successful. So we did a series on bullying prevention. The same little characters that we had developed. Um, we worked with two friends, like well, I say friends. They are friends of ours. They're also colleagues that are fantastic animators that helped us to come up with the creative development and everything for that. Okay. We didn't animate the characters. We didn't come up with the creative like the character design. We worked with them and they brought our vision to life. To say mm-hmm. that that's not something that we do in house. Like we do and we don't. That's one of those things where it's like the three of us don't do it but we do it in house right but those are very close to my heart because those characters are very personable and they're and we also did a series of we didn't do the drawing and we didn't do the writing but there's a series of picture books that came out of that and a graphic novel and then i guess it's sort of like when to talk about future projects another question that i really like to ask people is if you had unlimited resources which i mean i like that you also talk about just sort of you know, making do and adapting and working within the resources that you do have available to you or also outsourcing for people who know how to do things. But if you had unlimited resources, just all of the money and time and equipment in the world, like what would you want to talk about? What would you want to, and I guess this would be a case too where you're not doing work for someone else. Like if you were doing work that was not client-based, based off of your own um, idea, maybe you get someone else to direct it, but you have um, all of this, all of this availability, what story would you want to tell? Um, I, it's interesting that you asked that because lately I've been like, because of COVID-19 and being quarantined, if mm-hmm. you want to call it that, we, at the beginning, we didn't have, um, we didn't really know where our money was coming from, but we also didn't really, couldn't really do anything about it. So we were like, okay, well, we don't have a lot of work, so what are we going to do? So I did spend a lot of time working on things or coming up or, or trying to think. I've actually given myself a lot of time to think about what, I care about and what mm-hmm. I want to tell stories about and um, two things sort of really come out for me one is education which I've spoken to before mm-hmm. on other times but also specifically what does inclusive education look like and how is it possible like is it actually possible to mm-hmm. create an in- inclusive environment I used to want to look at just like education what was the point of education and, and you know how can we educate our kids for today like and this is changing rapidly as we're even speaking, but mm-hmm. like say a year ago, I was looking at, oh, okay, you know, let's look at forest school. Let's look at, you know, the green school. Let's look at all these different ways that people are educating their kids, unschooling, homeschooling. And is there one solution and should we be changing the way we're educating our kids? But that sort of morphed because of my my own child's um, neurodiversity. She's like what you call neurodivergent. I guess she has sensory processing disorder. So she ran into problems in school that I never thought that she would have because of, 
her sensory processing issues. So mm. um, it started making, and because, and she has a friend at her in her class who's on the spectrum for autism, and and his, and his mother is a teacher, and she said, with all the education she's had or all the new learning she's had, she's like, I wonder how can we make school really inclusive? And so that sort of mm-hmm. is where my is morphed a little bit for me, and I'm like, well, I'd really like to look at what would inclusive education really truly look at like because. I feel like our school is doing a good a good job and they're still not doing uh, because they don't have the resources. It's not that they don't have necessarily the, the, the desire. Mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. What would that really look like and how? And just this whole online learning situation that people have been dealing with with homeschooling, the fact that, or homeschooling, crisis schooling, whatever you want to call it, like it's not it's not equitable and it's not inclusive. Like, yeah. like we did okay, but it's because we have two parents that are willing to do things with our child that are not following exactly what the teacher said, not because the activities aren't good, but because they needed to be adapted for her to stay interested mm-hmm. or for mm-hmm. her to learn properly or whatever. Next question Just is because- asking about your experience as a woman in the industry. I was like, do I ask about festivals first or being a woman? I can't remember. But I asked about being a woman first, um, which is sort of like this next section is sort of to talk a bit about like where we're coming um at this from like femme fatale's perspective of like trying to create a yeah. festival where we can gather together women and female identifying folks to just talk about being a lady being a gal and being in film and what that means um and our audience is quite young like we're looking for filmmakers between the age of like 15 to 25 so these are people who are yeah. just like they haven't even been or like maybe they're in film school now but for the most part like maybe like high school students like just sort of creating their first documentary on their iPhone or their because now kids have iPhones which is crazy um, or their their school camera or whatever they have access to their parents um, technology um, and really just starting off so yeah I'm really curious to hear from people who are in the industry about what your experience is as a woman um, to give context to those kids who are just sort of like beginning to like put their foot in the game um, so I have like I have my own experience, and then I have, like, my opinion. Okay. <laughs> like, the way I think it probably is, because I, I work in a very small, like, I, I work with two, I do work with two men, but I work with two men who are um, highly respective of my abilities, mm-hmm. that's the way to put it, I guess. Like, I've never felt with the three of us that I'm ever undermined for my opinion or whatever, because I am a woman. Right. Um. And, and in fairness, like, for the longest time, this is what I always tell people, I was ne- I've never been more of a feminist since I had my daughter. Never. Mm-hmm. Before that, I was always, like, just, who cares? Like, let it go. You know, like, I'm better than this. I can prove them wrong. Like, any time I ran into those things, I was like, it's, you know, just don't let it be a, a thing, right? Like, right. I'm kind of that opinion, which I, I think a lot of people run into quite a bit. Um, but then when it affects somebody else, then you then you become, like, your child, for example, you become strongly opinionated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so for me, like, there were times, like, I, I can remember specifically, and I remember the reaction of Alex and Ian also being like, what the heck is wrong with these people? Where, like, somebody would say, like, this is, for example, when I was in Alberta, and we were working with not the, not the people we were working with as our clients, but then we were going out and filming in lots of different locations, and some of those locations were heavily male. Mm-hmm. Like, there were no women that worked there at all. Mm-hmm. And I was the only woman in the room, sort of, for, for example, because the, our clients, like our project authority, I guess you'd call it, from um, from Alberta was a guy, you know, easy to get along with and everything. I had no issues with him. 
but just like that sort of surprise that I kind of got sometimes from people where they were like oh you're the one in charge but they're right you know so but that was like that's a specific situation where like the guys kind of after were like did he just say like what I think he just said mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. or then the other thing I've had where my name is Aaron T okay my name is spelled E-R-I-N which is a woman I mean a girl spelling in theory I mean it's fine not to assume it is but I've had many times where I'm the one who's interacting with you know potential clients or whatever and I always get a, a reply to dear Mr. T and I'm okay. like but it's what yeah and like why would you even assume that like why would you assume that so much that you you avoid the name (laughs) yeah like I I I personally when I've dealt with people and I'm not sure I just you know will say hello and then just go into yeah 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 yeah. so that I found and at first I was like oh whatever they don't and then I was like well is it because they're assuming because I'm the one contacting them and I'm the producer and I'm in charge that I must I must be a guy so that, those are kind of the most blatant, I guess. Um, but I, again, I've worked throughout my career in, in the work that I've done. So many of the people I've interacted with, because I am in it, I've done a lot of work in education, nonprofit, um, are women. Right. So I don't necessarily have that primary hurdle, maybe, where I'm going into a boardroom and it's like all men and they're just like, who are you? And mm-hmm. I don't have to listen to you. Um, and then because my coworkers, who are both men, are you know, very, I don't know what you call them, they're feminists, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> or at least they try to be. If they say something later, they're like, oh my God, I wasn't supposed to say that. Was it? But like, it's never, there's never an assumption made that I can't do something because I'm right. a girl. It's probably assumed that I'm probably the one who can do it because I am a girl. Mm. But then, like I said, flip side, after having my daughter, like I'm much more of a feminist. I'm much more like, that's not fair that she can't do that. Or somebody would assume that she can't do that because she's a girl she should have as much opportunity as anybody else. Like that whole thing with uh, Gina Davis's, you know, media, her, her group about women represent 50% of the population. Mm-hmm. Why aren't we represented 50% of the time in, in television and film? Mm-hmm. Like that's another thing for her where she's like, you know, oh, well, why is there all these shows that I'm watching don't have good girl characters? And that's changed a lot in the last couple of years, which has been fantastic. And then the other thing, the other flip side is um, for her as well is that my husband's from Mexico City originally, so Arya's there's a representation of the, the Latin community too for her and all kids like you know black, brown, whatever to see the representation be better mm-hmm. and it's changing, but it's just that idea that normalized that you know kids are not just all one color kids are not then the boy is not always the main character and the girl is not always the friend. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So um, so that was sort of like my experience and then my opinion right (laughs) so I think it's still very I think there's still a lot of work to go through to to be represented properly in Mm -hmm. the film industry but I think I mean I think it's being talked about yeah people are aware of it I think people are trying to make choices and changes and I think younger people in general will make better choices and changes I'm hoping based on what I've seen we were just watching Disney plus uh the Mandalorian Mm -hmm. series and then we watched all of the gallery making of. So they had like all the directors sitting around the table talking about mm-hmm. the characters and what it was like to work on the show and everything. And you've got like Dallas, what's her name? Bryce Dallas Howard, uh, Deborah Chow, I think her name is. Yeah. Um, I can never pronounce his last name. Rick Fuyoyawa. I can't remember what his name is. Uh, Taika Watiti and Dave uh, Filoni, I think it is. He's the guy who originally directed and produced uh, Clone Wars. So that's why mm-hmm. he was there. But basically, like, this this 
panel, it's a round table also, very conscious choice, I think. You know, you've got two women directors, one who's Asian, um, you've got um, Rick, who's a black director, and you've got Taika Waititi, who's a Maori mm-hmm. um, director. So you've got a very diverse panel of people who are working on these projects. And I looked at it and I thought, wow, like, that's fantastic. Probably very conscious, but who cares? Yeah. Because that means those people are lending their voice to these things. And they're all fantastic directors. It's not like, I mean, and again, I have a whole other opinion on when people are like, well, I think the most, like, you know, willing, like, person who's got the most uh, talent should get the Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's not even go there because it's got so much, there's so much, anyway. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) for sure. privilege there, so... All that to say, I was actually, I saw that and I thought that's fantastic that that representation is there and it's just what it is, mm-hmm. right? It's happening and it's it's well done and if that's, people have to make those conscious choices, they should be. And mm-hmm. they, they may have to do that for a long time because before it comes naturally mm-hmm. and that's fine. I'm so, I have no issue with that, right? Like I, I mean, we make conscious like, be working in education, we make conscious choices all the time when we're interviewing people to make sure that different voices are represented. Mm-hmm. And we get, we have difficulty. I worked on a French documentary about um, teaching through an equitable lens, and every single one of my interview subjects was a white person. Right. And it was really difficult because it was all about equity and inclusion yeah. and teaching children through an equitable lens, and their kids were all different colors and, and, and ethnicities. And the kids we interviewed were quite diverse, but, like, the actual people that wanted – and this is the thing. There were um, – individuals that could have been in it we had one actually we had one woman who was black who was who was very you know she was very comfortable on camera so she wanted to do it but we had a lot of people who we'd love to have interviewed but they didn't feel comfortable so I'm like right. I'm not going to push people yeah. to be interviewed but it's it, it comes across like at the time they were concerned and I was like oh it's fine and now looking back because it's been five years or four years I'm like oh my god yes of course 100% I should have been more aware of that yeah. in a way that I wasn't because I was looking at it through a different lens. I was yeah. like, yeah, but, you know, they're all there. We're seeing them. The kids are being represented, you know, like, yeah. I was like, oh, Aaron, oh, but... I think that's so. hard, too, because, like, especially when you when you detail your experience, and, I mean, your experience is, like, unique to you, and, and it might not have, like, it obviously has something to do with race, but it might not all have to do with race that you've been able yeah. to have a primarily... Um, you know, like welcoming experience of like being a woman in the industry, not welcoming, but just like an understanding that the people you work with respect you as a woman and that's not in question. Um, but I think for sure, like, I mean, I haven't really been working in film as much recently, but even just I'm always trying to think of like my, you know, my experience will definitely be changed because I'm white, like that'll definitely yeah. be part of it. And so like there's so many decisions that I make that I try to be conscious of but sometimes I definitely do like make those mistakes and it's it's always interesting to talk about like you know my uh, my uh, understanding of this of what the experience of being a woman in the industry can be a certain way and I can say oh it's not that bad and then you know I've talked to like I talked to some women of color on the podcast and they were like well, I'm talking about just, I'm talking about my experience as a woman and then also my experience as a woman of color yeah, and that's more layered. Yeah, yeah. And so I think it's interesting to have those conversations about representation too because it's not just about representing the intention to do good or the intention of diversity, but it's actually understanding that every person will bring a different perspective to the conversation. You just, you 
you just need to hear everyone, you know, like you can't sample, yeah. supplement those conversations. Um, but then, but then you also, like you were saying, like you want those people to be comfortable and with a history of industries that are not made for, for people who have like these certain identity factors, of course they'll be less comfortable to be in front of the camera in that context, or they'll feel like they might be like, you know, there's also like a lot of issues with like tokenism or putting yeah. someone under the spotlight in the wrong way or, you know, yeah. so yeah, it's very interesting to have those conversations. It's definitely like a lot to navigate. It's an important thing to navigate, but it's definitely like a lot, a lot of thinking to do, a lot of listening to do, um, a lot of educating, yeah. So I guess the next question is uh, advice for young filmmakers, um, which also is question about like your first festival. So you said your first festival was a ways back, um, but like what your experience at festivals has been. What would your advice be for young filmmakers who are like you know just in between that stage of like they've made something, you know maybe they've had it at one or two festivals and they want like more people to see it. Like how do you grow? How do you build your like I don't know. How do you how do you get the courage to just start your own company? <laughs> well, that's like where it's like, well, you know, sometimes you're just thrown that and you have to just do it. Um, <laughs> I think one thing I will say is that uh, I'm not sure how well I can speak to what to do when you have a piece of work that you like you've created and you want to take it farther. Mm-hmm. At this point, um, I will say, for example, because my experience was, you know, the film that I produced was in a film festival before I had graduated from university. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the film that I directed in my final year was bought by the movie network. I don't remember how that happened. <laughs> in fairness. Because oh, I ran a film festival. I did mention this to you. I ran a film festival yeah. with Ian and Alex uh, from 2000, 2000 to 2008. Nice. Um, so our films were in it, obviously, when we were students. It was like a little bit self-serving, but yeah. we had a lot of other students in it. And I'm not sure if that was because we had sponsors that had come. And they were like, oh, you curated a bunch of student films for us. We need student films in our, in our, you know, on our channel. So um, it was when the movie network had just first started up. So they did, they had a lot of content they needed. Um, but for me, I was like, oh, you know, I, I sold my, film I think I like made a thousand bucks or fifteen hundred bucks which probably paid for what I spent on it because I tried not to spend a lot of money on Mm -hmm. it so it was fairly thrilling for me um so I didn't really push it too much farther (laughs) (laughs) but I think my advice would be um to really think about like what what do you want to do like if that sounds kind of cheesy but like for us us realizing that we didn't really want to do narrative film Mm. We wanted to make documentaries, whether those were creative or paid for by somebody, because all the work we do has got a documentary base to it, whether or not it's an awards show that's giving you a character profile on people's businesses or talking to you about what kids think about parent engagement in school and stuff like that, or what does mathematics mean to you? Like, they're all documentary based. They're asking a question. People are answering them. Um, That was for us like a real turning point was to be like, you know what? I don't want to do really want to do a narrative film really so that mm-hmm. was a good rather than pursuing it for too long and then realizing it wasn't really what I wanted to do because I think people fall into this is what I'm supposed to do this is what I have to do like I know that when I was in fourth year my um the film like the head of the film department said to me because he was one of our teachers he said because I was working always with Alex and Ian and I directed the film that I ended up eventually sold he said don't just be a producer 
like be a director too Mm -hmm. because you're really like you have a talent for it and don't just because you're also really good at producing fall into that typical I guess he was also saying typical thing where the girl produces the film and the guys direct it right that said fast forward I don't know how many years and when I said to people over and over again like I, I also have the opportunity of directing quite a bit. Like when I go and do interviews, I'm directing. When I'm editing, I'm directing. Right. You know, but in general, my preference, what I love to do and what I'm good at is producing. Mm-hmm. Maybe being a creative producer, a field producer, you know, meeting people, talking to them, making them feel comfortable, getting their information, like finding out what they want to talk about. Like all that stuff is not necessarily not, could not be considered maybe directorial because you're still interacting with people and getting them to do stuff but I remember that sort of stuck with me for a while where I felt like I needed to prove myself as a director and I was like but that's not really what I want to do mm-hmm. saying, giving it up is not giving something up of myself because right. it's not really what I want to do right <laughs> and I guess I found I found the niche where I get to do kind of both anyway like I'm not necessarily yeah. directing actors although I have done that in French because we do a project and it's we don't work a lot with actors but we have and it's like when we do work with actors if it's in English Alex usually does the directing but if it's in French I do it so it's not like I'm not I don't still have that opportunity mm-hmm. um, to do it so I think that would be really important is is to look at what you're like that film that you made or whatever why did you make it and what about it is that you loved and what about it did you not like and are you falling into doing something because you feel like you're supposed to do it and because because you really want to Mm. because it's so much easier to stick with things if you love them like I'm sure that's why we have stuck with working on our company for so long and then so my last question is um I like to bring this like the sort of everything that we've been talking about to a close with this because I think it's kind of interesting to hear people's answers it's uh when you're a kid what did you want to be when you grow up and then what do you want to be when you grow up now all right, so I have I thought about this question because you mentioned it. Okay. <laughs> question. So I have like a couple of things for what I was a kid because there's a progression. Okay. Maybe as explain my fascination with some stuff. Um, so when I was like an elementary school kid, I wanted to be a private investigator or like a detective. Okay. So like, I think this is partially because of Moonlighting and like Magnum PI. In fairness, mm-hmm. and also I've always loved mystery books. Like I love solving mysteries, and maybe it's a problem solving thing because I like problem solving as well mm-hmm. um but then I wanted to be a marine biologist for a short period of time okay. short period of time I think that's my interest in science because mm-hmm. I do have a science interest I just never really pursued it um but then my big thing was when I was about 12 13 I discovered like acting and singing and I wanted to be in musical theater and I did acting I did professional acting I was in a couple episodes of are you afraid of the dark mm-hmm. so but getting on set when I was in are you afraid of the dark was really the catalyst for me to want to go to film school because mm. I watched all these people behind the set making the actual film and thinking well that seems way more interesting mm-hmm. like the people that are the camera people and the, like everything even down to like the nitty like the nitty-gritty of like the craft services person and the person with the slate like it was kind of a bit maybe you know because you're I was like what 14 when I first mm-hmm. went inside I think so but that was like the turning point for me was um because I did some professional acting very little was being able to get on set and I remember the last time I was on really on set was I was around 18 um 17 18 and it was like the only reason I wanted to get in any other thing was because I wanted to get on set again and just actually see what people were doing as right. opposed to being on it to be in a show so, um, so that was where I, I sort of switched to wanting to go into filmmaking. Um, 
Yeah. And then now, mm-hmm. I think I would like to. Um, I think I'm feeling really strongly about creating, like having a voice to, to sort of put to this idea of um, in, ec- equity and inclusion. It seems like mm-hmm. a little bit cliche now because it's so de rigueur, but it's been something I've been passionate about for since 2009 when I was really introduced to the concept of it specifically in education. But mm-hmm. um, And then also um, having worked on redeveloping or reworking or rejigging our company, I've been working with Seema as my mentor. And what, the first thing she said to me was, oh, you have like, you should, this is your niche. Equity and inclusion is your niche. This is where you should be focusing your energy. Mm-hmm. And as soon as she said that, I was like, well, this is what I actually follow people on Instagram for. Right, right. This is what all this is what all of my time is like my personal time for education is spent with learning about what is neuro like what does neurodiversity mean what is Mm -hmm. you know what is it you know how can we be more equitable in the workspace like all these things like following you know um uh different voices you know transgendered voices black voices Mm -hmm. indian voices that was what i was doing on my own time and so i said well this is easy for me to to sort of switch to that and so that's um where i've been working on developing an app an angle or a part of our company that focuses on that and that's been for the last i would say six months so this is really again this is really timely but it does feel a little bit cliche because it's like i'm launching a website to go into that focus but it's like at a time where it's perfectly timed but it yeah. also feels a little bit forced right especially because i'm i am I said that to Seema. I said I have to be really aware of the fact that I'm still a white person. Yeah, coming yeah. in and saying, I can help you educate your business. Like your, I can help your business be more equitable. Right. And here's how. Or we can look at all of your video work can be, you know, authentically representation. Like authentic, sorry, authentic representation within your video work. You know, creating content that matters. And what does mm-hmm. that look like anyway? So I think that's what I want to be when I grow up. Is somebody who can do that authentically all the time like it's part of what I do for my job Mm -hmm. and I don't have to find time on my own time to work on it I guess I don't know right that makes sense but yeah totally um, because I feel really strongly about it well that's incredible thank you so much for chatting um that was we covered a lot of material this was a lot of fun (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And it's so exciting. I think it's also very interesting that you you know, you're talking about creativity and, and, um, and film and this whole like process of being in the industry as being so tied to educating and sharing these different voices. And I'm I'm hoping that it's true with the festival that we're able to um, just amplify a lot of voices that aren't necessarily listened to in other festivals or in other screening contexts. And so that's definitely very, very relevant to the work that we're doing. And uh, yeah, I hope that that is successful for the people that we're talking to. And I hope that, yeah, everyone gets to hear all the stuff that you have to say and to and to be inspired by that as I am I of course it. yay I'm so glad it's always good to have a, an enjoyable interview that's <laughs> that's what you strive for um yeah so we'll talk soon um yeah all right. awesome all right I'll talk to you later goodbye okay. thank you for listening to the femme fatale podcast if you'd like to hear more please subscribe and follow us on instagram at femme fatale film festival This episode was recorded by Astrid Moore and edited by Rianne Sabroka. Thank you so much, Rianne, for joining our team. The music is courtesy of Epidemic Sound. The track is titled Red Red Shoes and it is by Zara Donick. I would also like to extend a huge thank you to my lovely team of Naya Hofer, Temple Ray, Ona Blusenik, and newly Rianne Sabroka, and to everyone who has been a part of Femme Fatale over the years. Thank you. 
Signing off for now. Catch us next time chatting with another femme fatale.